You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Morning. Peace be with you this morning. I'm humbled and I'm thankful for the opportunity to stand before you this morning as we open the scriptures and learn together. I'm thankful to Pastor James and Pastor Nick for their leadership in our body. And I thank Pastor James for his leadership in inviting me to share and in his encouragement as I open and work through the text in preparation for this morning. I'm going to start this morning by asking you a question. It's a question we've all asked and answered thousands of times in our lives. It's asked in many ways, sometimes profound, sometimes simple. A question that can come from our deepest parts or from the most flippant exchange. And the question is this, who are you? Who are you? What do you settle on when people ask you who you are? When you turn inside and ask yourself, who am I? Sometimes this question is asked in a way that makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it's simplified or watered down, relegated to superficialities. Where are you from? How old are you? What do you do for work? But I wonder, when you're given the opportunity to introduce yourself, to say who you are, what comes to mind? Is it your work? Is it your family of origin? where you're from, how old you are, your cultural identity, your political affiliation, what do you settle on? For me, as James said, my name is Bradley Speaks. I'm the husband to Jessica, father to Norman and Merritt, son of Kevin and Jay Lynn, brother to Jody, Michael, Adam, and I repair espresso machines for a living. <laughs> I think what we say when we introduce ourselves, it's important. It's meaningful and it matters. It goes beyond just the exchange of biographical information, but shows us a desire of how we want to be seen by others. Of course, sometimes our responses are superficial, but even then, what we're able to say when we introduce ourselves on our own terms, what we land on helps to reveal who our true selves are. And if it's important when we do it, I'd venture a guess that it's all the more important when Jesus Christ himself does. Our text this morning might be little known or easily swept aside, tucked in behind some hefty dialogue just before the defining moment in history. This exchange might not be a highlight on your scripture reading plan, but as we dive in this morning, I think we'll see that the content is of ultimate importance. In the passage, we'll see how Jesus defines himself when he's given the opportunity. At the end of a series of debates with religious leaders, he gets the chance to make an argument. And when he does, when he is able to set the agenda, he makes a case for who he is. As we look at our text, I pray that the Lord would be gracious to us and reveal himself to us this morning through the words of Matthew. Would you pray with me? Father God, we're so thankful for this body of believers. God, we're thankful for the gift of your word, the gift of your son, 
Lord, pray that you would enrich our lives this morning with a greater knowledge of who you are. Spirit, we invite you here. We ask that you would open our hearts, make fertile ground for the word of the Lord. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We ask that you would show yourself to us in a new way this morning. Enrich our desire, grow our desire for you. Would you be with us? In Jesus' name. So we're in Jerusalem. It's Passover week. Thousands and thousands of pilgrims and families from throughout the Jewish diaspora gather. The hustle and bustle of the visitors fill the streets. There's an increased presence of the Roman army and security. Revelers, tourists everywhere you look, in every doorway, in every window, families are gathering to celebrate. We're in the temple courtyard. Wide open space overhead, well-trodden limestone court beneath our feet. Steps leading to the temple proper, just to the side. Fathers and mothers scurry to and fro throughout the complex, prepping for Passover, offering sacrifices, and making sure that the lamb that would be the centerpiece of their Passover feast was prepared just right. Maybe there's a clear blue sky overhead. A plume of smoke rises from one end of the temple courtyard. The smell of mutton, barbecue, fills the air. Flocks of religious and political groups scurry about, some probably teaching, some probably engage in arguments over purification and application of the law. Maybe others are on their way to staff a shift at the altar. Some worshipers coming and going stop to listen to these religious leaders as they instruct their followers. And in this crowded scene is Jesus. Surrounded by followers and common folk, he's telling parables and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. As Pastor James has taught us over the past couple weeks, religious groups, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, approached Jesus throughout the day and posed a series of three paradoxical questions. All questions intended to trip him up or expose him or undermine his authority as he teaches. The first question was sociocultural about citizenship and taxes. The second question was spiritual, asking about the supernatural world and life after death. And the third question asked by the Pharisees was textual, seeking to test Jesus' knowledge of the law and the commandments. Christ, in his kindness, received them all. Christ, in his kindness, answered them all. And in his kindness, he responded with a question of his own. We see in verse 41, while the Pharisees were, get, were together, Jesus questioned them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So Jesus takes their questions, questions intended to undermine his authority, to question his leg legitimacy, to trip him up and trick him in front of a crowded temple court. And he asks his own. What do you think was the nature of his reply? Was he tired of them? Was he angry, 
frustrated, short-tempered? Was he now trying to trick them and trip them up? Was he scheming and sarcastic? Or was he kind? Was he loving? Was he in his goodness and his graciousness inviting them to see who he really was? You see, I think he knew full well what they thought about the Messiah. They thought the Messiah would be a political ruler, a military hero in the fashion of David, come to rise up and overthrow their Roman oppressors. They knew the prophecies from Nathan's declaration to David, recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that the Lord would raise up a descendant whose kingdom would last forever, to the prophecies of Isaiah, like we read this morning, promising a coming king and so many others. They were ready for this question. He took their attempts to trick him, their questions brought with malintent. He took their searching questions, testing him and his authority, and he responds, not with displays of power or a flourish of supernatural fireworks, but with a question he knew they could answer. He meets them on the field of their own definition. He meets them where they are and begins to reveal himself to those who have eyes to see. Brothers and sisters, how he treats us the same way. He welcomes our questions patiently, kindly. I wonder what questions are you asking today? Are they like the religious leaders? Cultural questions, spiritual questions, questions about the text? Are you bringing to him questions about what to do in a cultural environment that feels unwelcoming? Are you asking him how to respond when a loved one dies before you're ready to say goodbye? Or what to believe when you doubt? He takes our searching. He takes our wondering and our wandering, and he points us to a greater reality, a greater comfort, and a greater truth. He points us to himself. As it was with these religious leaders, these who came that day with their own motives and intentions, there will be a time when we're faced with the same question. What do you think about the Messiah? Who do you say that he is? Just another teacher? Or is he something more? Something greater? Matthew, writing his account of the exchange, uses the present tense here. Some translations pick this up a little more clearly. Matthew writes, as it's translated in the ESV, he asked them a question, comma, saying, what do you think about the Christ? As Matthew recalled and wrote the words of Jesus, he heard, and Matthew wants his readers, he wants us to hear, Jesus still asking us the same question. Who do you say that I am? Thankfully, in this text, he gives us an answer. He clarifies his question to the Pharisees by asking, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Here we begin to see the ultimate significance of the question. He's taken their questions on the law and taxes and the afterlife and says, thanks, 
But here's the issue. Who am I standing before you? Who am I? In traditional cultures, you can know quite a lot about a person if you know whose son he is. You would know where they came from, probably where they're going in life, how important or unimportant they might be. If you know someone's father, you know quite a lot about the son. And that's what he's getting at. If he's only another rabbi in the courtyard teaching his followers, his answers to their questions should be considered. But if he meets messianic criteria, if he is a son of David, his answers might contain some messianic truths. They should listen up. But what's more, if he reveals himself as something greater than that, if he reveals himself as a son of David and greater than David, then in reply to their questions, he has been proclaiming the very word of God. At this point, he's not technically asking the Pharisees about himself, what they think about him and his ministry. Instead, he's revealing his true nature by asking them what they think about their yet-to-be-found Messiah. What kind of person is he going to be? Who do you think he'll be? Whose son is he? In verse 42, they replied, David's. This was a long, understood, and accepted truth, passed down from the lips of the prophet Nathan to that courtyard, to Judaism today, that their coming and hoped-for Messiah would be a descendant of David's. Their Messiah would carry the authority of a king, coming to rescue them from oppression, to liberate and reestablish a kingdom that would rule forever. I wonder at the tone of their reply here, was it quick? This was easy. They had it memorized. It was a softball. They knew it. Arguments in the bag. Wrap it up. The sun's setting. Let's go home and continue our preparations for Passover. But he's not done with them. In this passage, Christ is revealing himself to them and to us. But we see in their reply bit of a self-own. They do some of the work for him. They confirm and affirm his bona fides, his bona fides. If he was not a descendant of David's, they could have walked right into the temple and proved it. They knew he was being called the son of David throughout his ministry. Over the course of that very week, people had filled the streets of Jerusalem, shouting and calling him the son of David. When he entered Jerusalem days before on a donkey, people shouted, Hosannas to the son of David. And from just the day before, we find in this passage, Matthew 21, in that very place, the day before, Matthew writes, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, And the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus doesn't deny. He replies, yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. If he was not of the human lineage of David, they would have known it 
and they could have disqualified him instantly. In the temple, just beyond where they're talking, they kept genealogical records on everyone. You know they would have walked in there and checked. And the fact that they didn't disqualify him on these grounds tell us that he was, in fact, of David's, David's lineage. Have you ever been in an argument? Have you ever been in an argument with someone and you knew you were going to win it? You were the expert. You had mastered the subject matter. Maybe the argument was about politics or math homework, sports history. Maybe the argument was about how to load the dishwasher. With supreme confidence, you lay down your argument, ready to claim victory, only to have the person you're talking to present you with a piece of information that exposes you. You realize you're not the master that you thought you were. As I mentioned in my intro, I have three brothers, two older, one younger. I have a patient, loving wife. I know how this feels. Your mouth dries up. Your ears start ringing. Your neck glows beet red with a rush of blood, embarrassment, acknowledgement. Wonder if the Pharisees started to feel this too. If after their short reply, they start to see him for who he really was. If they start to feel their authority, the ground on which they stand start to slip from beneath their feet. They had come with their arguments, their questions, their traps. He answered them all, asked them a simple question, and flipped the script. We see in Christ's reply to their answer, he does not deny the accuracy. They're not wrong. They're just too small. Their expectations are limited, and they are too low. We read in verse 43, he asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Quoting David, he says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Jesus does not deny the truth spoken by the Pharisees, but he shows them it's not enough. He's saying their answer is accurate, but it's inadequate. They're knowledgeable, but they're ignorant. They have the autobiography memorized, but they can't see the author standing right in front of them. He uses their own text to show how limited their understanding is. He reaches back to a Psalm of David and pulls out a bit of information about their coming king that just doesn't quite compute with a limited understanding and earthly expectations. The source text he quotes is Psalm 110, and Jesus affirms David's authorship. This is important because Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that describes the coming Savior of the Jewish people and the Israelites. David, inspired by the Spirit, sees the Messiah in a place of authority 
executing judgment on Israel's enemy from the right hand of God. Now, we lose a little clarity in the translation from David's original writing to Matthew's Greek to our Bibles today. So I'm going to reread Jesus' reply without the pronouns, and we can see more clearly what he's saying. Verse 43, Jesus asked them, How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord? Verse 44, God declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And finally, in verse 45, if David calls the Messiah Lord, how then can the Messiah be his son? David writes in the third person, literally, Yahweh or the Most High says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He refers to the coming Messiah using the term Adonai, meaning he is referring to someone greater than him, someone in authority over him, someone above him. And David, in his inspiration, sees God inviting this Messiah, affirming him as his Lord, to sit at his right hand. A seat at the right hand of a king is not a place of subservience, but of honor and of power and authority. One who sits at the right hand of a king has the role and function of operating in the king's authority and of a ruling alongside the king. So, we have an accepted understanding that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but we have David himself referring to the Messiah as his Lord, as someone greater and above himself. In traditional cultures, you would never call a descendant Lord. It wouldn't make sense to them. You would call someone in a position of authority Lord, or you might call a great ancestor Lord. But David, when he was writing, didn't have anyone in position of authority above him. He was the king. If he was referring to someone that came before him, an ancestor, well, that wouldn't compete with the vast number of prophecies that they affirmed. Besides, they weren't living in an eternal kingdom at this time, so it couldn't be true. Jesus leaves them with a question. How can the Messiah be David's son and his Lord? The only answer to this question must be that the Messiah is both a descendant of David and greater than something wholly different than David. It's not a denial of his Davidic sonship, but it's an illumination of the fact that the scriptures themselves teach that the Messiah is more than David's son. Remember, as recently as the day before, he'd been called the son of David. So now on the one hand, he's affirming himself as David's son. He's affirming himself as human. And he's revealing himself to be David's Lord, divine. He's synthesizing a concept of a human Messiah, an earthly king assuming the mantle of David, with the concept of a divine Messiah, unbound by human limitations. So the answer to the question of whose son is he? He is both David's son and the son of God. He is human and he is divine. The Jewish people had been taught throughout their history, Messiah would come from David. He'd be a son. And the house and the line of David Jesus affirms that reality, but he introduces to them from their very own source texts 
a bit of information that upends their understanding. Look at that. When he shows them who he is, he goes to Scripture. How gracious, how kind. He goes to what they know. I think this is interesting because think of what he could have done. He could have turned their clothes to snakes, turned the entire temple courtyard to a loaf of bread. He could have transfigured right then and there. He doesn't do these things, though. He goes to Scripture. He goes to their knowledge, to their history, to their hoped-for promises, and shows them what they're missing. These religious leaders, they were the standard bearers of their culture, the inheritors of their story, the caretakers of the people of God. And he says to them, all your hopes, all your promises, everything that you're longing for in this Messiah, this coming King, when you look back over the course of your history and you see standing above all kings, David, and from him you've built your identity and your desires, everything, all of it points to me. And I'm standing here telling you who I am. Verse 46. No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. In a rhetorical sense, he has made them to be the enemies in David's psalm. He's at the place of honor where the priests experience the holiness of God. He's claiming to be David's Lord. He's taken all comers and he has emerged victorious. Their response, shut up and run. Why? Why wouldn't anyone answer him? Dare ask him another question. Were they, were they embarrassed? Were they exposed? Realizing that all their claims of authority might be slipping away? I don't think they're just embarrassed. They're challenged. He's confronting their knowledge, their reality, and their identity. He confronts not just their knowledge of the scriptures, but their understanding of their Messiah. He reorients their understanding of who the Messiah is and what it will mean when he comes. He upends and supersedes their identities. In their response to stop asking questions, to go away, we find our invitation our invitation this morning is to see Christ for who he is and to respond to him as we are, where we are. See him as the one who has come to save us, fully God, fully human, come to live among us and in his kindness, reveal himself to us and save us. In our response, we have a choice. We can rebel. We can shut up and run like the Pharisees did. Or we can submit to Christ and allow him to be the Lord of our lives. The disciples listening to Jesus' reply that day 
latched onto the reality of David's psalm and this way of reading Christ into their ancient texts. Psalm 110 became the most referenced Old Testament text in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, Peter on the day of Pentecost relies on the Lord's teaching in the first sermon. I'll read starting in verse 32. Peter says this to a crowd of Jewish unbelievers. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Note the reference to David's psalm here. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Peter says, For it, is not, it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, and he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the house of Israel know with certainty, with certainty, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Our invitation this morning is, respond to the rea- is to respond to the reality of who Jesus is, not like the Pharisees, who confronted by the impotence of their own power, the inadequacy of their understanding, walked away, but to respond in the same way that our brothers and sisters responded in the streets of Jerusalem that day. Humble, excited, open hands, willing to do whatever. Peter and his fellow apostles replied to their question by saying, repent and be baptized. Repent and submit. Repent and declare to the world that your allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his lordship. Sisters, brothers, oh, that we would respond the same way today. That we would see Christ for who he is. That we would respond and allow him to be Lord of our lives. But what does that look like? To allow him to be Lord, to submit to his lordship. How do we do that? Relying on a talk by Tim Keller on the Lordship of Christ, I'll submit that making Jesus Lord of our lives means not simply to make him the most important thing in our life, though it is that, but to make him the most important in every area of our lives. It means not to categorize him and hold him above your job, your family, your future, your hopes, but it means that he is the most important thing in those categories. In his talk, Keller explains that making Christ Lord of your life means to obey him and his teachings, to submit to him, to rely on him, and to expect from him. The degree to which we are doing those things in our lives is the the degree to which we are allowing him to be the Lord of our lives. In all areas of our life, our family, our work, our identity, our future, the extent to which we obey, we submit, we rely on him, and we expect from him. How do we know? How do we know that we're doing this? 
I'll leave you with some evaluation questions we might ask ourselves as we seek to make him Lord of our lives. Am I willing to obey whatever God says about this area in my life, no matter how I feel about it? When it comes to my work, am I willing to live honestly, with integrity, even if it means I don't get ahead as quickly as I thought, or if I don't get ahead at all? Am I submitting myself to his command and care? Am I willing to thank God for whatever happens in my family, whether I understand it or not? Do I accept what comes into my life as part of his command, as part of his command care for me? Is there anything in this area of my life I'm relying on more than God for my hope and my meaning? Am I relying on the outcome of an election for my hope, for my meaning, whether it affirms my beliefs or not? Am I expecting from him? Do I acknowledge him as Lord and expect his goodness and his graciousness? Are there problems or limitations that I think are too big for him to remove or improve? As we ask ourselves these questions, take heart, friends. He is kind and he is good. He was that day and he is today. As you ask yourselves these questions, see Christ standing before you, taking your questions and offering himself. We're entering into an Advent season, maybe unlike any we've experienced a season of hope and longing, of joy and desire. But Advent this year is probably going to be more than that. A season of anxiety, of confusion, isolation. Friends, take this Christ. Rest in his goodness. Rest in his love. Would you pray with me? I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.